Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, church. Man, singing about rainbows of living color. How crazy is that? It's got me excited as um, I've spent even much of this year preparing to go through Revelation next year. I mean, that's right out of Revelation, like just straight up like living rainbows and different colors and all these gemstones. And so I'm already, I'm in this wonderful place right now where I'm going through the book of James and getting ready to go through Revelation. Like my life, I mean, it is, talk about doing, this is exactly what I'd want to be doing with my life. <clears throat> so show of hands, is uh, everybody enjoying going through James? Yes? <coughs> Good. <clears throat> so, I mean, excellent. And, and what's bizarre about going through the book of James, quite frankly, and I was telling Gianna this this week, is this is the first time as a preacher I feel like I'm being too preachy, right? It's like, man, it just, but, but we're just going through the text, and this is just the way, this is just the way James presents information. It's so intense, and he wants you to change, and he wants you to be convicted. He wants you to be uncomfortable, and he's just calling it like it is, and um, as a preacher, I love it. I, I really do. I love that experience, and I hope you do as well of sitting there, and, and yes, hey, you know what? It is wonderful to read scriptures that make us feel great and encourage us, and it should. But I also love those sermons that I just have to look at the ground. I don't even want to make eye contact with the, with the pastor because there's just something going on inside of you. And so that's a good thing. And so never be discouraged like, oh, I don't feel great. I feel like I need to work on something. We all do. We all do. So... <clears throat> With that in mind, how do we measure the worth of a person? How do we measure the worth of a person? Well, the answer is we probably measure uh, the worth of a person by wealth, right? Worth, wealth, makes sense. The problem is uh, there's more to a person than, than how much money they make. The problem is, is, is that is usually how much person is worth financially is usually the thing that we think about the most. Like that is the, the dominant characteristic. That is the thing about them that, that submits to you and dismisses everything else about a person. Now look, nobody would ever say this. Nobody would ever say this. But the world and I think the church, we operate under this idea that more money equals better than. More money equals better than. It sounds absurd. We don't believe that. But isn't that the way our world works? I think our actions prove this. Our actions prove this when we are excited and always talk about any sort of celebrity encounter that we have. I saw somebody who's famous. I saw somebody who's rich. I rubbed against them. And yet we don't go bragging that we bumped into a homeless person, 
right? We don't, we don't brag. I saw this crazy homeless person. He was so homeless, you should have seen him. Like, you don't brag about that. But somebody who has fame and riches, we do. You know, we often look for celebrities, for rich people, and avert our gaze. Like, we don't even want to make eye contact with that person who, who is really needy and desperate, and so we ignore them. We favor one instead of the other. We will go out of our way for one instead of the other. And what this means, quite frankly, is the person who needs the least help, who has all the resources, they don't need anything from us, is the one that we quickly go and offer help to. And then there's somebody who is desperate and needy, and we don't even want to make eye contact with them. And this happens in the church as well. That's why James is talking about it. The world and, and often the church favor one over the other. It's silly, it's sad, and it's sin. This is something that should never happen in the church. And yet my family, when we were in Colorado, when we first moved out there and were looking for a church, we experienced this a lot to varying degrees. Before we, I forgot how many churches we went to, you know, a dozen or so before we found somebody who, who would actually just love us and be excited that, that, that we were there, didn't think about, I know how I look, like, you know, I'm, I'm not the person you want walking in those doors. And uh, churches made us feel like that. Like, who's this guy? He's not going to contribute. He's not worth much. Why, why should we go love him and hug him? And so this favoritism, this partiality, it, based on anything, really, I don't care what it is, somebody rooting for a different team than you. But especially in today's text, based on wealth, we should not show favoritism towards anybody based on anything. Therefore, this morning, we need to define what this partiality is, what this favoritism is. Why is it so horrible? It doesn't sound like the worst sin, I mean, if we're going to rank them, but James is going to shoot that down, Right? But also, well, what does it look like? What does it look like to, how do we overcome this? And we'll look at how we can overcome that by our relationship with Jesus. Our text today will be James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Our sermon is titled, Judging Our Favorite Sin. Let me pray for us. Lord, uh, you take this so seriously, which means... Everyone here who calls on your name and, and professes obedience to you should also take this so serious. <clears throat> and may we do that, Lord. May you convict us about how you feel about this, this, this sin of partiality. Would you give us that new heart, Lord, by the Spirit, born again, Lord, that, that doesn't want to be like the world. We want to be like this kingdom, like this Jesus, Lord, that we follow. Help us to operate out of the newness of life we have in you that looks so much different than our chaotic culture, that our culture would scoff at. Let them, Lord. Let this church and the way we do things and the way we think and act bring you glory and bring you joy, Lord. We do all this in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen. So we're going to read a pretty, uh, pretty good chunk of scripture right here, and then we'll unpack it. Starting in verse 1, James chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality 
as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and some fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in his shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, hey, you sit here, here's a good place, while you say to the poor man, hey, you stand over there, or you, you, know, you, you just sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? We'll stop right there for a second. And so what James is, is saying, like outright, James is so crystal clear about like his application, about like he's not abstract. James is saying there is a sin the church needs to stop, and it is the sin of partiality. We will also interchangeably call that favoritism. I say favoritism more often. It's the same thing. And James gives this crystal clear example, convicting example of, of, of people in his church who would judge this obviously poor person coming in and, and this obviously rich person coming into their presence. And you may think to yourself, Psh, I wouldn't treat them any differently. I've seen people with rings. I'm not impressed by some rings. I, I, I would treat them the same as anybody else. Good. That's probably true. I believe you. But that's because rings aren't the same in our culture as they were in James's culture. James, like, in his culture, if you had rings on, you were somebody. Like rings were bling. When you had rings on, you walked, right? You walked like a zombie because you wanted everybody to see your rings first. Recognize who I am. Good morning, church. Look at, look at all these rings. And so it's a big deal. So when he says rings, you might think, oh, not a big deal. Huge deal. In fact, we, we know that, that there was actually um, businesses who, who their business was renting rings for people to go to events. I mean, it was the thing. You stick your hand in the door first so everybody knows, oh, here comes somebody. And so it was a big deal. I think an equivalence today might be somebody walking in who's just <clears throat> excellent health, can afford uh, their own personal chef. You could tell. You can tell who can afford their own personal chef and who can work out six hours a day. And you can tell. And they come in and they look great, right? And they're glowing, right? And they are wearing nice clothes. They probably have rings on too. You probably heard their awesome car come up, right? I mean, they just have everything. Maybe even some sort of celebrity, maybe even social media, something. Like they are known. They are somebody and this is quite the contrast to somebody who's poor and comes in, possibly homeless, not smelling particularly wonderful, hair matted, maybe even dreaded, not by choice, not trying to be cool. And they're miserable. They may be talking to themselves because they haven't talked to a normal, had a normal conversation with somebody in so long. I mean, if we're honest, this person may be even a little scary. 
Who would you be more drawn to? Who would you be quicker to welcome into the church? Turns out, God says there's a right answer to this question, right? It's not agree to disagree on this one. And I can tell you, the answer isn't the one we are all trying desperately to suppress right now. Because we know what the answer is. I wish it wasn't true. I know the truth, but I know what our reaction would be. So thankfully, we get to go through this ahead of time. Think about that poor person for a moment. Now, when we think about that poor person, what, what evil judgment do we normally make about seeing a poor person? We make a judgment trying to figure out why they're there. Scripture doesn't say that. Scripture doesn't say see a poor person and see whether they're really poor or how they got there. Right? That's not the gospel. Consider that this person, they've come into your doors, which means God's, if you, if you believe that God is, is infinite and knowledgeable and all-powerful and all-knowing, knew that person was coming through your doors. How are you going to treat them? They may have heard about the gospel. Maybe they picked up a track. They've heard about this great God. And they're coming in to see what it's all about. This place where, where I'm going to be loved and respected. This God loves the poor. Maybe they found the New Testament and Jesus keeps on saying he loves the poor. And they want to go to this place where poor are loved and respected and brought into the family. Only to find out, oh, it's the exact same here. The same respect for them as they are asked, shushed. Right, go sit in the corner. Go sit on the floor. And look, I, I mean, if we're being fair and honest here, I think it's worse today. I have been in churches and seen somebody, a poor person, come in. And what do they do? We'll, we'll, they'll have deacons or elders escort them out. Right? And, and you know, they'll have excuses for that. But there is no excuse for that. Somebody sitting in the back of the room hearing the gospel, what's the problem with that? I've seen churches do it today. I think it's worse today, the way the church handles poor people. And James is calling this out, right? He's, pre he's being preachy. He says this is evil. Your evil thoughts, those thoughts you had, the things, thoughts that made you do that are evil. That's not the kingdom of God. That's not the church of God. It should look different from the world. With that in mind, I do want to take a minute to talk about, uh, uh, make a few quick notes. Lest we misunderstand what's not being said here. I think it's so important to this context. What is not being said here? What don't I want you to leave with believing this morning? Wealth isn't evil. Being poor isn't righteous. That is not what this is about. And we know this from the fact that a lot of poor people are evil. And a lot of people who have wealth are also spiritually rich. That's not the point of this. The point of this is being able to judge, right? To judge correctly. To not show partiality based on wealth that is evil. And again, this may sound weird. The point of this isn't not to judge according to wealth. It's not. Don't ignore someone who is poor, right? The, the, the whole thing isn't to be like blind to this whole issue of wealth. 
The point is to observe it, make a judgment, but not an evil judgment. The poor person is not better off if you don't see they're poor. No, see they're poor. They need help. See it, address it, right? The judgment part isn't evil. The evil judgment is the problem. And so we need to see them through the eyes of Jesus and help them. Judging isn't wrong. Judging according to the wrong standard is wrong. Judging according to the world standard is wrong. And so now that we understand you know, what, what partiality and favoritism is, the next thing I want to do is look at why it's so bad, why it's so horrible. And it, it, it's going to be described just how horrible it is. Now, now to go back to this, we need to go back to James chapter 1, which I, I know you guys have already memorized, um, <clears throat> which says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So everything we talked about last week, that was the whole sermon last week. And so this comes right after that. This is the very next thing. And so with that in mind, what that means is what partiality shows is if you show partiality, it shows that you have a worthless religion. It shows a lack of control on your tongue, for your tongue. It shows no care for the poor, and it shows that you are indeed stained by the world. And so with that in mind, I want to look at three ways that that, that partiality violates pure religion. Three ways partiality violates pure religion. Because again, this is the first thing he brings up after all talking about how you don't want your religion to be worthless. Hey, here's a good step. Let's start here. And so what's the first way it violates? It doesn't control the tongue. Remember, our tongue is the test of our religion. Like, that, that's how people know what we believe. Like, what, what comes out of your mouth? And in verse 3, there's a person falling over themselves to welcome the rich person. Come on in, rich person. Come sit here. This is the best seat. I saved it for you. Let me clean it for you. This is the seat you want. While with that same tongue, telling that poor man, or poor person, who may have been sitting outside, right, all night, in the dirt, on the ground, that, oh yeah, you can come in, but, you know, you're used to sitting on the ground. Well, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just keep going for that for you. We'll keep doing that. So go ahead and sit on the ground. And it seems like an over-the-top picture. But what are we going to do when this happens to us? I want it to happen to us. I want somebody who is desperate, rock bottom, who needs to hear the gospel to walk in these doors. And I'm not worried about the rich person coming in. I'm not worried how they're going to be treated or the well-off person, but how are we going to treat that person who comes in, like we described earlier? Not the person that you would seek out. When they look at us, are they going to see Jesus or are they going to see the rest of the world? Well, thankfully, we know from this morning we can prepare for that, right? So we won't be caught off guard and we're not going to make them feel unwelcome. Second, pure religion is violated because it doesn't help the poor. 
in verse 127, remember it says to look out for the needy and look after the needy. Find them, help them, they need help. And the whole Bible talks about this. How many times in God's judgment does it start with him judging people for what? How they judged and treated the poor and the widow, right? And then the foreigner. That's usually the first thing God talks about in any judgment. This is how you're going to treat them. This is what it feels like to be treated like that. Even Jesus himself in Luke 4.18, quoting Isaiah 61.1, says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Not welcoming the poor is a denial of the gospel and the words and the works of Jesus. According to Jesus and according to James, we are not being like Jesus when we do not welcome the poor. We shouldn't make the poor sit lower than the rich. That's what the world does. The gospel is we are all sinners, right? Sinners who, who need mercy, who need grace, and need Jesus. We must all, rich and poor, come to that cross of Christ, right? That's where we're going to go as Christians. We have to come to the cross, and there's no box seats for the rich at the cross. So why do we pretend there is? At the cross, the ground is level, right? The, 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 the ground at the cross is level, and we sin to make it anything but that. Three, pure religion is violated when we are stained by the world. And James highlights this in verses 6 and 7 again. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? That precious name that we have. And this is crazy. This is a great point. This is the way the world thinks. This is nonsense. The world prefers the rich over the poor. Okay, we get that because the rich can do stuff for us. We want to be in relationship with people who can, who can help our cause, help our lives some way. That's okay. I understand that. But he's saying, especially in this culture, these are the people who are oppressing you. What are you jumping up and down about? They don't like you. And if you don't believe this is true, just look at the election results for California this past Tuesday. Right? I know I don't talk about politics much, but we're talking about people who kill babies, mutilate children, right? Raise taxes, raise gas prices, right? Ban cars, close church doors. They were voted back in. People chose that. People had a choice and chose that. Welcome back, my oppressor. Welcome. Please come oppress me. It's absurd. That's what James is saying here. Now, my guy, R. Kent Hughes, says of such behavior, to fawn? To fawn over one's oppressor is strangely irrational. Likewise, John Calvin doesn't get it either. He says there's no reason for men to pay respect to their own executioners. 
and at the same time to hurt the men who were on their side. It doesn't make sense. This flawed thinking is worldly thinking. It stains the church when we do the same thing. And what's at stake is more than just having a worthless religion. It's not that your religion might not be as pure as you want it. What's at stake, quite frankly, is God's judgment. Right, because James, I told you, he's going to get preachy. Listen to what James says here about that. Now we're going to go through verses 8 through 11. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Man, that's intense. That escalated pretty quickly, right? Partiality is a sin of evil judgment that brings God's judgment, right? Partiality is a sin. It's an evil judgment that brings God's judgment. How serious does James take this issue? He says, if you don't do this, right, or if you do this, if, if you show favoritism and partiality, it doesn't matter what you've kept. Maybe you've kept a hundred of, of those other uh, commands that, that Christ commanded us, but if you don't do this thing, you're still guilty of all of them. This one unravels the whole thing. You may have built this as blanket of your life and your righteousness, but this one thing unravels all of them, and you are, you are going to be under judgment. Why is this one so bad? What is going on here? Why is this one so much worse, this sin? Well, it says in verse 8, because you're not loving your neighbor. You're not loving your neighbor. Remember Jesus in Matthew 12, 30 and 31 declared, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And to show partiality, to show favoritism, it breaks the two laws that Jesus said were the most important. There's a lot of, of commands in the Bible. A lot of commands. And maybe you would say this morning, it's too many. It's hard being a Christian following all these rules. Start with these two. Right? Start with these two. Everything else hinges on this. Loving the Lord with all your heart, mind, body, soul, strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Do those two things and see if everything else isn't already falling into place. Everything is at stake. Again, if we we're being honest, I think that partiality, quite frankly, breaks the golden rule. Right, which Jesus says in Matthew 7, 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do, to, uh, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's to say, I don't think anybody here would say to one another this morning before we leave, hey, just so you know, if I ever become poor, treat me differently. If 
for some reason you think that I'm poor, you don't even have to make eye contact with me. Don't even let me, don't even let me sit in a chair. If you, don't, if you don't think I have money, just let me sit on the floor. Put me outside so I don't get to hear the gospel. How many of us would say that to each other? Nobody, because it's absurd. So why would we do the same thing in somebody in a situation that is desperate, who desperately needs Jesus? Why would we get in the way? Why would we put judgment on them? Let's not judge like the world and be held under the judgment of God. And so how do we use better judgment? Judgment that avoids that judgment from God. So we're not judging evilly. What is the judgment? How do we get to that point where we're judging correctly? So let's look at three ways to destroy the sin of partiality through Jesus Christ. Three ways to destroy that sin of partiality through Jesus, through his words, through your relationship with him, through your understanding of Christ. According to these scriptures, let's go back to chapter 2, verse 1. I guess we're in chapter 2. Stay in chapter 2. Go back to verse 1. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory. All right, that's the first answer, right? It's right there in front of us. It gets to the heart of the matter. Who should have the most glory and honor at church? I want to hear an answer. Jesus, yes, amen. Jesus should have all the honor and glory. The best seat in the house should not belong to the rich person. You see that error? Now, I know technically, now Jesus already has the best seat in the galaxy, in the infinity of existence in the heavens. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, ruling the nations. But he wants the best seat here at Vanguard as well. He wants the seat on the throne of our hearts. Jesus wants to be seated on the throne of your heart. But he's dethroned anytime we see somebody come in and we're so oppressed that our focus changes to making sure he gets all the honor, that he gets the glory. That, that doesn't make sense. We shouldn't honor the rich because they are rich in money. We should honor Jesus because he is rich in glory. Right? That's the first thing he says. The glory of Jesus is greater than any riches. You have to understand the glory of Jesus to operate and judge correctly. We should honor Jesus by abiding by his rules, by expressing his heart, which is for the what? If you've read the Gospels or, or Paul or James or Peter, his heart is for the poor. We're not acting like Jesus when we're not being cool with the poor and loving them and welcoming them. Whoever God brings in our doors, we need to love them. God brought them through our doors as a test even, right? To test what our religion is like. Is it worthless or do we have that heart that Jesus has for them? Number two, judges those who were judged by Jesus. Judges those judged by Jesus. A lot, a lot of judges there. But we see this in verse 212. So speak and so act as those are who to be judged under the law of liberty. And so depending on how you perceive this verse, it's either talking about our arrogance or our hypocrisy. 
right? Because he's saying, like, you already understand your judgment in Jesus. Are you going to be a worse judge? In other words, operate in light of our judgment. How offended can we be? How bad can somebody smell? How poor can somebody be that would be worse than our standing before God before we were called in Christ? We're offended? Really? God's letting us into heaven? He's letting me into heaven? And I'm going to judge somebody else as not being worthy of coming in those doors? It doesn't make sense. We were judged according to the law of liberty, which means that we have freedom in Christ. Right? We've talked about freedom from sin. Romans 6, we don't have to sin anymore. We don't even have to feel guilty anymore. Amen. Praise God, right? We don't even need the guilt. Uh, our eternity, we've been set free from the consequences of sin. Why? Because Jesus gave up his life for us. And in return, James is saying, and you can't give up a seat? Jesus gave up his life, and you can't give up a seat because somebody has the audacity of not being wealthy? That's absurd. And if you think James sounds upset, he, he's upset. This isn't cool. This is not, this is not the heart of God. This isn't the church of Jesus. Jesus has made everything better for us. You ever think about that? Everything. As we've looked at already, you know, in chapter one, even in trials, it's better. Like we can go through trials with joy because of Jesus. And yet we would take those people who already have it so hard and make their lives harder? That's our religion? That's having the heart of Jesus? Like, let's make it hard for the people who have the hardest life already. It's not the gospel. It's evil. And if we make evil judgments like that, then we best not assume that we are going to be judged by the law of liberty. Hard teaching right here. If you judge like this, then you're not, you've shown you're not judged by the law of liberty. Your judgment's coming, and it's not going to be a good one. But for those who have been judged, we should reflect the mercy of Jesus. Reflect the mercy of Jesus. And we see this in verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And this is going to be our memory verse this week. So let's implant it. Let's get, let's get this one in, church. Let's get this into us. I've also, just side note, been really encouraged by so many of you who have reached out and said, yeah, I've kept up. I've memorized every verse that we've talked about memorizing. That's awesome. And James is a short book. You'll probably memorize half the book by the time we're done. But this is our verse. <clears throat> For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so as people who have received mercy, we should give mercy. We have it overflowing. We have so much mercy to give, right? Because we know what it feels like. We know what mercy feels like. How could we not look for people to give mercy to, let alone if they walk into our own house? We are to reflect the mercy of Jesus by preaching the gospel, which is what? We need mercy, right? We need mercy. Situation, horrible. We need mercy, which Jesus offers. 
message we proclaim with our words and actions that reflect Jesus in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. But we forget. We forget that we are rich in Christ. When we forget the glory of Jesus, we forget the glory of the gospel. How amazing it is. When we come to church every week for years, we forget the glory, right? That's the answer, James says, is the glory of Jesus. <clears throat> we are rich in him. We are heirs with him. We are children of God, right? We're going to be with him forever. It's amazing. But when we show partiality, when we show partiality, what we are saying, I believe this, is we don't believe we are rich in Christ. We don't believe we are rich in Christ. Because the moment somebody comes through those doors who has any sort of wealth, we ditch Christ. You are saying whoever's coming in, they have more to offer you than the riches you have in Jesus. But that's not true. Are you going to give up your God? Are you going to dismiss being obedient and having a pure religion with God, being faithful to Jesus for what somebody may offer you and probably won't because they don't like you? You're going to give it all up for them who might do something for you instead of the God who already did something for you, not something created you, saved you, is with you, walking with you today in this crazy world and is creating a place for you to be with him forever. That's what we're going to give up because somebody has some rings? Nonsense. And again, Jesus doesn't hate the rich. Don't think that. That, that. That's not what this is about. Yet, he repeatedly gives preference. Choosing, it says. Choosing the poor. Because the truth is, something about Jesus, which I love, it works in my advantage, is that he, he, Jesus loves to take the worst right, like me. He loves taking that, the worst person and saving them and calling them and making them rich in himself. What Paul calls the foolishness of the world. I believe that. I am qualified today because of my foolishness. I believe that every day. How am I ended up preaching? Because God shows the foolishness of the world, right, to proclaim, to proclaim how great he is. He calls the poor. He calls the people that you wouldn't call. He calls the people, I don't know how many times you've talked to somebody and people will say, well, what, what if Hitler would have repented? Would Jesus would have forgiven him? Yes. That's the craziness of this. It's the beauty of it. Yes, absolutely. The foolishness, the evil, the poor, and Jesus calls them and makes them rich by giving them the most precious thing, element in this galaxy, which is the blood of Christ. How can you be more rich than that? 
Blood that washes away your sin, your offense against God, washes it away. Did we forget that, how incredible that is? Church, the sin that we must wash away, or at least never get dirty by, is the sin of partiality and favoritism. And this isn't just about money. This is about making judgments on people. Again, I don't care if they're wearing the, a, a different a jersey of a team you don't like. Whatever it may be, you should not make a judgment on them that stops them from feeling welcome in this house. This is the house of the Lord. Let us not make any evil judgments on them. Because if we don't extend mercy, it shows that we have not received mercy. Nobody who's received mercy would just not love to extend it. And so let us glorify Jesus by reflecting and judging by his glory and by his mercy. Let me pray for us. Lord, your, your mercy is amazing. It is overwhelming. All of us here know who we were when you called us that we did nothing deserving of the precious blood of Christ. We did nothing, Lord, that your spirit, Lord, would make us born again into the most wonderful knowledge to know the most amazing holy God. And yet you extended mercy. You looked at us and judged us in Christ. May we, therefore, Lord, if four come in this building, People that might look scary come in this building, Lord. Quite frankly, anybody in Bakersfield, Lord, who needs you, which is just about everybody, everybody, may we not make judgments that would stop us from loving them and declaring your gospel, Lord. Let us judge correctly according to the new heart that we have in you, which we thank you for, Lord Jesus. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.